Daniel. Prophet Daniel, at a very, very young age, was carried off as a prisoner to live in a foreign kingdom, a godless kingdom. His homeland was in ruin, his life was in ruin, but he was called to live a life of righteousness in the ruin. The world around him was evil. The kingdom that he was headed to was evil. They did not know God. They didn't understand or support his commitment to God. They didn't affirm even his moral principles. He and a handful of godly friends were going to spend their entire lives in a world awash in sin with no way of escaping. And I think the question that I'd like you to ask as we journey through this story together, not just this morning, but for the weeks and months that lie yet in front of us, the question that I'd like you to meditate on is, how would they do it? How do you remain righteous in ruin? How do you live the right way in the wrong place? Last week, we read just the very beginning of the story about how King Nebuchadnezzar was going to destroy the kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, but he got called back to Babylon. He had to abort his plans for total destruction. He was called back to Babylon when his father died because he had to ascend to the throne. So instead of destroying the city, he chose just a handful of prisoners from the young nobility, prisoners including Daniel, And some of his friends. He also looted the temple and brought back the best treasures he could find. And he brought them all the way back to Babylon. But he gave orders to his officers about selecting the prisoners that they would take with them. We read these verses last week. But I just kind of want to circle back a little bit and review. It's from Daniel chapter 1 beginning in verse 4. Here are Nebuchadnezzar's orders. He says, select only strong, healthy, and good looking young men. HRCC, look around this room. We'd we'd have been toast, you know? Strong, strong. You know, nobody with like a gimpy left foot or anything would have have made it. I I remember when my brothers were in elementary school studying in history, uh, one day they they learned about the Nazi occupation and the concentration camps and in that part of the story of World War II. And, and Tony came home from school and Tony was always the tender heart of my brothers. And he came home and was asking mom and dad, like, is this real? Like, did these soldiers actually do this? And well, yeah, they did. And why did they do it? And, and he said, well, who, who did they take? Who did they take? And, and mom and dad were telling him, well, they believed that only a certain kind of person was, was the right kind of person. Uh, and, and so, you, you know, you had to have blonde hair and, and blue eyes. Uh, and they, they listed a couple of other things. And a seven or eight-year-old Tony um, looked around. And my brothers had brown eyes. And I have brown eyes. And mom had brown eyes. Um, and my dad had blue eyes. And apparently that was the only thing he heard because Tony just looked at the family and with you know, big glassy eyes, he said, they would have taken our entire family. And then they looked at my dad, and, or he looked at my dad with his blue eyes and said, except for dad. And then his eyes went up a couple inches to my dad's bald head and said, no, they'd have taken him too. <laughs> And that's what's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar's orders select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. (laughs) Make sure they are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. 
The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. And then I'm going to skip down a few lines to verse 8, where it says, But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. And this is really the beginning of the story, right? Last week we just dealt with the setup to the story, but this is the beginning of the story because for the first time in the story, Daniel's got a problem. I mean, it's kind of funny. I guess he had a problem last week. His city was being besieged and he was being taken prisoner, but now he's got a personal problem, doesn't he? He's got an issue that he needs to resolve and address, but it's a really, really interesting problem because if you pay attention to the text, the problem's surprising to me. It's not the problem I thought he had. But Daniel has a problem that that surprises me. Let me just recap here. The evil king is going to train Daniel in Babylonian language and literature. Can can I use a different word for that? Like in, in other words, the king is going to indoctrinate him in the ways of his world. That's what the king wants to do. But Daniel doesn't protest that. Language and literature, sure, I'll learn. The evil king is going to groom Daniel for work in his own royal palace. In other words, the evil king is going to use Daniel to strengthen his own position in the evil world. But Daniel doesn't seem to have a problem with that. He doesn't protest that. And then thirdly, the the king is going to feed Daniel using food and wine from the royal Babylonian kitchen. And that's where Daniel says, enough is enough. And he takes a stand there. It, it's, just, it's, it's shocking to me. Daniel's saying, look, you can indoctrinate me, you can use me, but you better not give me lunch. <laughs> it's kind of surprising. I told you a week ago that the prophet Daniel at this point is probably no more, I don't even want to say probably, almost assuredly no more than 15 years old. Uh, in our household, uh, Tyler is, is 12. His middle name is Daniel. You know, so we have the prophet Daniel, and in our home we have Tyler Daniel, right? Tyler Daniel is 12. He'll be 13 this spring. He's a junior higher. It's a pretty good analog for what we're thinking about when we think about the prophet Daniel at this point in the story. And I was thinking about this. Tyler Daniel goes to public school. He's in the public school system. And I have to tell you, as Christian parents, Sue and I are not always thrilled with the language and literature that Tyler brings home from the public school system. They don't share our values. And I totally get as a parent why many parents, Christian parents, choose to withdraw their children from the public school system and find different you know, educational alternatives because the, the indoctrination that takes place there, the uh, language and literature, so to speak, is, is, is overwhelming. And that's not where Daniel took his stand. I was thinking about this. What if Tyler Daniel came home and said, Dad, great, great news. They've got a a, a career services program at school and I've been selected. I'm going to be trained and I'm going to get an internship in an entry level position with one of those law firms that sues churches and Christian organizations under civil and religious liberty legislation. I'm going to get a job there. I would not be thrilled with that. That's not, that's not the career that I want for my son. But I have to tell you this. If Tyler gets the chance to visit the White House as a junior hire and tells me, hey, Dad, when we go there, they're going to let us eat in the cafeteria, I'd be okay with it. Like, I'd be okay with it. But Daniel wasn't. That's where Daniel drew the line. And so there's something different going on there. Isn't there something we don't quite see? Why did 
the prophet Daniel draw the line at food? Uh, and the answer is we actually don't know. Uh, biblical scholars have varying opinions on this. We don't know exactly why that was the issue that Daniel chose to take his stand at. But there are a few theories. There are some thoughts, and I'm going to share mine with you. Some have suggested that the Babylonian menu may have been filled with the kind of food that was forbidden by Jewish law. You know, the, the ancient Jews, they had the law. They couldn't eat pork. They couldn't eat shellfish, things like that. So maybe, just maybe, Nebuchadnezzar's favorite food was bacon-wrapped scallops. And, and Daniel said, no, we, we can't do that. We can't do that. We're not going to eat your food because it goes against Jewish law. I don't really fully buy that because um, there was no Jewish prohibition against wine. And that's one of the things that Daniel specifically says. We're not going to drink your wine. They, you know, the Jews drank wine, right? You know, L'chaim. They, they, they drank their wine. Uh, some have suggested that the, the real issue here is that Daniel figured that Babylonian wine and meat would have been used in ceremonies involving Babylonian idols. And there's the whole thing about not eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. We're going to find out in a few verses that Daniel's suggestion is that he and his buddies go on a vegetarian diet. Uh, the problem with that is that when Daniel says bring us vegetables, he's not talking about broccoli. Uh, the word he uses, he actually says bring us seeds. He's talking about wheat and barley and grains. And the ancient wheat and barley and grains in Babylon would have been used in the very same ceremonies to the very same Babylonian idols that the Babylonian meat was. So I don't really think that option holds water either. The third option I think is a, a lot more likely. It's a lot more likely that the stand that Daniel takes is essentially a symbolic one. To take food rations from the king's table was understood as an acknowledgement that you were indebted to the king for your life. It was a way of pronouncing your allegiance to the king, proclaiming my life belongs to the king because he's the one who has sustained me. And Daniel says, no, 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 no. I can't go for that. There's a lot that we can do here, but I am not going to do that. Daniel is saying, I will live in your evil kingdom. I will even work for your evil kingdom, but I will not under any circumstances acquiesce to the idea that my life is sustained by your evil kingdom. Remember Daniel's name? God is my judge. He says, I know where my life comes from. I know where my life comes from, and I don't want anybody thinking any different. Daniel would have remembered the lessons and the stories that his ancestors told about the days of Moses and the miracle of manna in the wilderness. That's when Moses had taught his ancestors that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Daniel's saying, so we aren't going to do that. We are not going to do that. Daniel takes a stand. And Daniel's stand teaches us an important lesson. Living in the world is okay, but reliance on the world is not. Do we see the difference? Living in the world is okay. Reliance on the world is not. Christians throughout the centuries, godly people of all sorts, have understood this conflict between the principles of the kingdom of God and the principles of the kingdoms of the world. And they're often in conflict. And sometimes the answer has been, we need to withdraw from the world. And that's 
fair enough, that's good. We, we go on retreats. We try and find communities where we can live, places. There's various ways in which we, we do. We withdraw from the world. I'm not saying that's bad, but there's a limit to what we can actually withdraw from. And part of what Daniel's story is saying, look, Daniel doesn't have the option of saying, I'm not going to Babylon. That option is not in front of him. He can't really withdraw from the world, and that doesn't make him a sinner. Living in the world is okay, but reliance on the world is not. Just like Daniel, we, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are surrounded by the language and the literature of the Babylonians, aren't we? Most of us earn our living by leveraging our talents for the kingdoms of this world, just like Daniel was going to have to do. And are there lines that we need to be careful not to cross in those kinds of relationships? Of course. Are there ethical and moral boundaries that we should be mindful of and and try and protect? Of course. But more often than not, I think Daniel's story shows us that those aren't the battles that we should be choosing. If we're going to follow Daniel's example, we're going to spend less time in the culture wars and more time training our hearts to remember whose table do I dine at? Whose table do I dine at? Church, you're going to live in the world. You do live in the world. And that's okay. But from where does your life come? What is the source of your strength? And what can you do to train your heart to remember that every day? And for Daniel, it was a simple answer. I am not going to let myself be lulled into this this acceptance of the fact, this acknowledgement that it is this evil king who has given me life. No, every day when I mash up my own grains and make my own oatmeal, it's going to remind me that my life belongs to God and no one else. And I believe that's why Daniel takes the stand he takes. But it's not easy to do, is it? Here's how Daniel did it. We're going to pick up the story halfway through verse 8 in chapter 1. It says, Daniel asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I am afraid of my lord the king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age... I'm afraid that the king will have me beheaded. So Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. And at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. And the attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. Let me recap the story here because I think it's an interesting one. And I want to make sure we didn't overlook the important parts. The first thing Daniel does is he approaches the chief of staff. And did you notice that at this early point in the story, Daniel already has a really good relationship with the Babylonian chief of staff. And so he says, hey, We got kind of a problem here. Is there anything we can do? Is there any chance we could get the menu changed? And the chief of staff is very polite in the way he responds to Daniel, isn't he? He very politely says, you know, I'm sorry, I can't do it. 
I, I'd like to help you out, Daniel, if I could, but I, I really can't. In essence, what the chief of staff says to Daniel is, hey, you're a good guy and I'd like to help you out, but orders is orders. I, I, gotta, I work for the king. I got to do what I got to do. And this is the interesting part in the story because Daniel, you know, he's tried once and, and his request hasn't been honored. So what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Well, I would imagine that the logical thing would be to appeal to the supervisor. Can I speak to your manager, please? You know, maybe Daniel should circulate a petition. Maybe he should take his request directly to the king. Maybe he should say, look, if we don't get some veggies and water right now, I'm going on a hunger strike. I'm contacting the Babylonian Tribune. This thing is going to be in the papers and you guys are going to look awful. You would think that Daniel would take his complaint up the ladder of authority. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do when we don't get what we want? We appeal to a higher authority, a higher power. Daniel does the opposite. He appeals to a lower authority. (laughs) Instead of going up the ladder, Daniel goes down the ladder. Chief of Staff, thank you very much, I understand. And he goes over here and talks to the attendant, the servant, the guy who's actually going to deliver the meals. And he doesn't make his request bigger. Not only is he going to a lower authority, he makes a smaller request. Instead of, can we change the rules? He says to the attendant, look, we got a problem here. Any chance you could just get me some grain and some water for 10 days? Just give me 10 days. Just give me 10 days. And then we'll reevaluate. And the attendant says, I can do that. I can do that. I think we can learn something important from Daniel. When taking a stand, humility is a better tool than power. That's kind of mind-bending for human beings because we tend to think in the other order, don't we? But Daniel says, no, when you take a stand, humility is a better tool than power. Daniel didn't yell. He didn't make demands. He wasn't belligerent. He didn't square off in a debate. He didn't make a federal case out of anything. He didn't escalate the problem. I love the way the scripture actually captures this exchange when he's talking to the chief of staff. It says, Daniel asked the chief of staff for permission. Hey, I got a problem here. Anything we can do about it? He didn't make demands. And then a little bit later in verse 12, when we actually catch his conversation with the attendant, what's the first word out of Daniel's mouth? Please, 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 humility, please. Daniel's story reminds us that godly people ought to typically have good relationships with people in the surrounding kingdom, even when our moral standards put us in conflict. This was true of Jesus, wasn't it? One of the very first things we we learn about Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, you know the story, the the famous story of the, the wedding feast in Cana, where they go and they run out of wine, right? And Jesus says, well, grab some water, I'll see what I can do. You know, the very, very beginning of that story, there's just a little throwaway verse that I think sets the whole thing up. It's the John chapter two, verse two. It says, Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Jesus wasn't famous yet. There was was no kind of relationship to be leveraged here. The point of the story is that Jesus and the guys he hung out with were, were the kind of folks you'd like to invite to your wedding. And for the rest of his ministry, where do we find Jesus most often? We find him hanging out, having meals, going to parties with people just like him. No, with people from the kingdoms of the world. 
with people with whom he would have been in moral conflict if they ever got down to it. But Jesus had a good relationship with them. I'm reminded of one of our missionaries who will see this Friday, if you come to Featured Friday, Malcolm Henderson, who, who does the work that he does in the voodoo camps and among the voodoo priests in southern Haiti. One of the very first times I was in Haiti with Malcolm, I ended up visiting with Malcolm, myself, and a man named Lendi. Lendi is the most powerful voodoo priest in the entire region. He has an estate. And we sat in Lendi's uh, temple, just the three of us, to have a conversation. Malcolm and Lendi know each other very well and have become, despite their obvious differences, they've become very, very friendly. And I remember sitting at Lendi's table in this pagan temple, listening to a missionary and a voodoo priest have a conversation, pinching myself, thinking this is the weirdest place I've ever been and the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And I remember listening to these two men in conversation talking about things. And Malcolm was saying, Lenny was asking Malcolm how, how things were going and what his next plans were for ministry. And Malcolm was saying, well, I'm hearing there's uh, you know, rough time up in, in this region, in these villages, in this areas. And he said, you know, so I'm, I'm planning to travel there next week. And Lenny, who knows exactly why Malcolm's going to travel there to share the gospel, right? Says to him, boy, you know, you need to be careful. You're right. Things are rough there. And Malcolm says, well... I know I need to be careful, but you know why I do what I got to do. And so I'm going to go. And, and Lindy's giving him advice. And he's saying, hey, take this road, not that road. And when you get there, talk to these guys. And, and please be careful. And please be careful. And Lindy said to him, and, and I suggest you pray before you go. Very much like the book of Daniel, the stories in the book of Daniel, Lindy says to him, pray to your God. Pray to your God that he would protect you and deliver you. And then Lindy says, and when you get there, if anybody gives you trouble, I want to hear their names. <laughs> Malcolm used to tell me sometimes, he goes, sometimes I feel like I'm the doctor to the mafia down here. It's just like, but I love that. I love that about our missionary. Just a good, good relationship with somebody from another kingdom. And that's what Daniel had. The Bible tells us, of course, of course, of course, and very directly in many places that we need to be careful about choosing our friends. I'm not trying to throw that admonition out. The Bible says that we should prioritize godly relationships with like-minded people. There's a reason that we try to build relationships in the church, for instance. But that doesn't mean that we need to live in constant conflict with everybody else. It doesn't mean that we have to always be arguing with the rest of the world. And if we happen to find ourselves in conflict, the godly way through that conflict is humility. It's not the exercise of worldly power. So do what Daniel did. Ask questions. Listen. Be polite. Leverage friendship and relationships, not authority. That's how Daniel struck his deal. So let's just quickly find out how it worked out. Picking up in verse 15. At the end of 10 days... Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided for the others. I know some of you are thinking that's a pretty sad ending to the story, right? Oh, they had to eat just vegetables for the next three years. Some of you are rejoicing because that sounds wonderful. Let's try to hear it as Daniel would have heard it. This is a victory, right? He, he got what he wanted. The attendant 
The attendant gives him 10 days and goes, man, you guys look better than everybody else. I don't care what the rules are. I'm going to keep doing what I've been doing because it makes me look good. My guys are growing up. My guys are getting stronger. You know how 15-year-old boys grow. Can you imagine? Remember, we're not talking about old men with long white beards. You know, that's not this kind of Old Testament prophet. These are junior high boys. And so 10 days later, they're bigger. And they need new shoes because their toes are sticking out of their sandals. And they're wrestling with each other and they're roughhousing and they're strong and they're growing up and they're doing all of the things that young men do. And it's noticed. These guys are strong and they look good. Remember, it's the attendant, not the chief of staff, who realizes Daniel's onto something. His plan is working. And so it's the attendant that allows them to remain on this diet indefinitely. As best we can tell from Scripture, there's no indication that the chief of staff ever even found out about it. There's certainly no indication that the king found out about it. Daniel got what he wanted without having to overturn the law or win some sort of statutory debate. And I think that's a good teaching point. We don't need to change the law to change our lifestyle. We don't need to change the law in order to change our own lifestyle. At this point in his journey, now we're going to see this change over time, but at this point in his journey, Daniel isn't pushing for national reform. He's just trying to find a way to live a righteous life in the midst of ruin. He has the challenge of living that out in a kingdom that doesn't understand where he's coming from, but he's not going to take on the entire kingdom. He's not going to try and transform the way they are required to live. He's just trying to set a godly example. I believe God wants us to do the same. I believe that God wants us to be engaged in the culture around us. Jesus said we're salt and light, right? That's a way of saying we were meant to be agents of influence in the world around us. But you know what, church? I think too often we limit our imagination when we're thinking about what it takes to be an agent of change. We presume, perhaps, that the best way or maybe even the only way to influence the world is to change their rules. Next Sunday marks the 50th anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision. The decision, of course, by which the Supreme Court made access to abortion a legal right in the United States. And as I'm sure you all know, it was just this last year that that decision was overturned and abortion has once again become illegal or very tightly restricted in a number of U.S. states. I want to comment on that in light of Daniel's story. And my thoughts are very nuanced, so I'm hoping that you'll just kind of track with me for a moment. Like most Bible-believing Christians, I'm vehemently pro-life. I consider abortion to be one of the darkest spiritual aspects of this earthly kingdom that we live in. But to be honest with you, I have deep concerns about the testimony of the church in America in the aftermath of Roe v. Wade. I'm generally uneasy the way, about the way that some Christian groups have celebrated the change of the law. I understand it's important, a necessary even marker in our nation's understanding about the sanctity of life. But for a variety of reasons that I'm not going to take the time to go into right here, let me just say I'm not terribly optimistic 
that the change in the law will significantly impact the number of babies who are actually being aborted in our nation. If you go back and track the statistics, there were hundreds of thousands of even legal abortions being performed in this nation before Rome. And I have every reason to expect there will be hundreds of thousands of abortions being performed in this nation after Rome. I'm not terribly optimistic that the overturning of the law is going to change the bottom line in drastic fashion. But more importantly than that, I'm compelled by Daniel's story and by others in scripture that our battle shouldn't be focused on the laws of our nation. Godliness cannot be legislated. I just believe that with all of my heart. Godliness cannot be legislated. Whether you're talking about the church or the nation or anything else, you can't make people become godly people by giving them rules. It's kind of the story of scripture, isn't it? That the law was insufficient. The law was insufficient. Godliness can't be legislated. I think our concern should be for the hearts of people more than for the laws of the court. And most importantly, even when Roe was the law of the land for 49 and a half years, that never restricted the American church's ability to re-examine our own lifestyles. Our lives lived humbly in this worldly kingdom, I believe, always have had the potential to save more babies than the decisions of the Supreme Court. You know, study after study after study shows that the, the leading motivations for those who have sought abortions tend to be financial. Why do people get abortions? Uh, it, typically the answer has something to do with finances. And so I wonder, I wonder, what if there were so many Christian couples willing to adopt that adoption became more financially viable than abortion? What if Christian daycare became so affordable? You know, Christian daycare is usually more expensive than the secular alternative. What if Christian daycare became so affordable that mothers with financial burdens felt that they had more attractive options than abortions? What if American Christians became more personally involved in the kinds of social services that are offered, especially those in low-income communities. Now look, I recognize I am painting with a very, very broad brush here. It's not my intention to suggest that I have all the answers or really even any of the answers. I'm just saying I wonder. I'm just saying I wonder. I don't think changing in the law, changing the law means problem solved. I am compelled, however, by scripture to believe that the catalyst for change in a worldly kingdom has so much more to do with the lifestyles of righteous people and so much less to do with the evil laws of an evil empire. It's the lifestyles of righteous people. And as the New Testament says, (laughs) there's no law against that. There's no law against that. So whether we want to talk about abortion or any other of the culture war issues that we face today, 
you know, in 2023 in the United States of America, I say, let's take our lead from Daniel in 605 in ancient Babylonia. Let's make our own lifestyle, our own testimony, the focus. Let's, let's take a stand where a stand needs to be taken, but let's not choose to fight every battle that comes our way. You know, you don't have to go to every fist fight you're invited to. <laughs> let's decide that when we do take a stand, we're not going to leverage with worldly power. Why would we use the enemy's weapon to fight, our, to fight God's battle, right? Let's say instead, we're going to take a stand by using humility. If we don't get what we want, let's say I appeal to a lower power <laughs> like Daniel did. Let's walk with humility. Let's have a testimony that makes the attendant to the chief of staff, to the king of the empire go, man, I don't know what he's doing, but it's working. I'm going to go with it. I'm going to skip ahead. Don't listen to what I'm about to say because it's really part of my sermon for next week. <laughs> Daniel and his buddies are going to go through this for three years before they get presented to the king. And when they get presented to the king, you guys know the story, it's not like They're good, right? The king's like, man, now these are some Hebrew servants. <laughs> this is exactly what I was looking for. Did you catch the part earlier in the story where the king said, if we want these guys to look good, they got to eat off of my table. The world thinks their way is best. Don't they? The world thinks their way is best. But Daniel and his buddies say, let's just fly under the radar. Let's just live our lives the way God has called us to live our lives. Let's not make a federal case out of it. Let's just be faithful. Let's just do what we need to do. And trust God to do what he's going to do. And let's let the results speak for themselves. I told you a week ago, one of the things that I find most fascinating about the story of Daniel in the scripture is that we never find out what his fatal flaw was. We learn that about most of our Old Testament heroes. David had some fatal flaws. Joseph had some fatal flaws. Uh, you know, jo uh, Jonah, you name it, they all had fatal flaws. But Daniel, I'm not suggesting that he didn't have sin. I'm just saying his story is not one about fatal flaws. His story is a story of continued righteousness. Continued righteousness. Just keep moving forward. That's a story I can grab hold of. That's a story I can understand. That's a story that I think I can learn from because I got a ways to go. Would you pray with me? In so many ways, Lord, it would be a little bit disingenuous for us to suggest that the culture wars that we live in can even hold a candle to the ruin that Daniel lived his life in. There's a lot about this world that I don't like. But it ain't ancient Babylon, that's for sure. But Lord, there are other times when I grow increasingly suspicious that the spiritual darkness that surrounds us is sneakier than I realized it was. 
Maybe, maybe, maybe the world we live in is more like ancient Babylon than we thought. Maybe we've become so accustomed to the language and the literature of the Babylonians that we don't even pick up on it on a daily basis. Maybe we've become so accustomed to eating rations from the earthly king's table that our minds have forgotten who we belong to. It comes up in my life sometimes when I realize that I'm tempted not to trust you. When I'm tempted to think, no, I, I have to do this, this worldly thing. I have to work this job this way in order to pay my rent or my mortgage. I have to use my business this way in order to be successful and to get ahead. And I cut corners. It's funny, Lord, because it works the other way too. Sometimes I think I'm taking the righteous choice. Sometimes I think I'm taking the right stand. Sometimes I think I'm being a godly warrior. This should not be. And then I read Daniel's story and I wonder, was I even fighting the right battle? Oh Lord, your people are going to need wisdom. Living in Babylon is not easy. Being righteous in ruin is more difficult than we thought it was. Lord, we need your spirit today. We are reminded this morning that the law was insufficient. That's kind of the story of scripture. But thanks be unto God because at just the right moment, at just the right moment, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Oh, thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your saving grace. That's a promise that Daniel never saw lived out. <laughs> but we do. We know it. We see it. And so I'll help us to start by anchoring our lives right there in the knowledge of our salvation. Lord, I thank you for godly friends. I thank you for people who can encourage me and challenge me with your word. I thank you for uh, co-laborers in Christ in whom the spirit of God dwells. I thank you that you have given me Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego with whom to do life. But Lord, help all of us to remember that we need not live our lives in conflict with those from the other kingdom. That there's nothing overtly godly about saying, I'm going to argue every point. I'm going to debate every issue. I am going to squash the opposition. That's not how Jesus did it. Jesus didn't consider all the equality and privilege of divinity something that he was going to need when he came to earth. He let it go, and he took on the very nature of a slave. Humility was the way to take that stand. Lord, help us to stand with humility. And Lord, lastly, I pray that the testimony of your church in America, of your church around the world and the other places that we've talked about today, Lord, I pray that the testimony of this church, Hobson Road Community Church, 
I pray that our stories would be a testimony of your grace and your love and your goodness. Lord, that we would be known not so much by what we're against, but instead by who we live for. And help us never to believe the lie that says if things are going to change, the change has to start outside. No, 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 Lord. If things are going to change, it starts with us. And so it is with great joy and with great hope that I pray for my brothers and sisters today. I pray that you would be constantly about your work, your spirit work about renewing our minds. We need it, Lord. We need it. We need it this day. We need it this week. We need it this year. That you would renew our minds. That you would restore our souls. We pray, Lord, that you would do a new thing in our hearts. That you would invigorate us. That you would enliven us for the journey that's left ahead. We put a bookmark in Daniel's story today. He's just celebrated his 15th birthday. We're going to follow him for the rest of his days. And God, he's going to need you. Lord, we're going to need you. And so we submit ourselves to you for these purposes today. We ask your blessing on us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.